0: We now, in the last 10, 15 years or so, are seeing this sort of value angle come up to business, where it's not just about defining the features of your product. It's also about what the product stands for and what the person that's selling the product stands for. I think our society clearly has reached this point where moral beliefs and values that go behind a brand is an important feature of the brand itself. Mm.
1: Welcome to Execute the Podcast, bringing you actionable insights from faculty at the world's top business schools. I'm your host, Suzanne Brinker, and today we'll be sharing a conversation with Chaitana Achar. She's an assistant professor of marketing at Northwestern Kellogg School of Business, and we'll be talking about moral beliefs and consumer behavior. Chaitana, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Thank you for having me over, Suzanne. I am
0: well, and I'm very excited to be chatting with you.
1: Same here. So you are at Northwestern Kellogg, and I would just love to hear a little bit about the journey that brought you there. How did you get interested in your research area or areas, and how did you end up at Kellogg?
0: So I study healthcare marketing.
1: And I specifically
0: look at socio-model cultural factors that shape healthcare choices. And a lot of my inspiration for my research is really personal and very anecdotal. I feel, and I don't know how generalizable this is, but I feel like growing up as a woman and as a woman of color, sometimes decisions that should be clinical, like healthcare choices, would sometimes have this sort of moral angle to them, right? Like this cultural angle. And I'll give you a specific Anecdote, which set me off on this whole moral aspect of health choices. So I didn't grow up at a um, time or place where I would get the HPV vaccine. Do you know the HPV vaccine is for? Yeah, yeah. So when, so when I was a teenager, so that's something I had to do. Make a choice of as an adult in my twenties and get the vaccine. I knew my friends were vaccinated for HPV, so I was at this annual physical with my doctor, and I mentioned to her saying, "Okay, look, I don't have." I am not vaccinated for HPV and I think I know it's probably like my insurance cover said I'm at the age range that's at high risk for HPV so all these clinical reasons like rational reasons why someone should get them I checked out so I'll you know I think I'm here so just I'll get this shot and um, then this doctor takes a little pause and um, she says yeah sure we could get you the shot but if you're monogamous and I know you have a partner then you don't need the shot okay and that, that, that made me pause and that made me, and I then didn't push it because when it was framed as a question of monogamy rather than a medical decision, it brought up all these framings about why you need to do it, right? So are you planning to sleep around? Are you, I don't know, whatever else. So in, in hindsight, I thought a lot about this situation specifically, but also this type of situation where consumers make these decisions that are supposed to be clinical and rational, like risk is defined by your age, risk is defined by your lifestyle and so on. But they have these other factors of what others will think of me, what, how will people judge me? What does this say about me that I need to get tested for, I don't know, HIV, AIDS, you know? So all these different socio-model things that shape choices in domains that we don't think we shape. So that's, that, that's really like, The heart of my research. And a lot of this, this specific incident I mentioned happened to me when I was in the PhD program. It's one of those things that really pushed my thinking. I went and looked up on if there was work on this type of stuff. There wasn't. Then it took me a year or two to get research started because there's this whole academic research takes its own time. You need to study these things in a very systematic way. And I ended up at Northwestern because Northwestern is one of those schools where, which is, of course, very well known for marketing. This is the marketing department at Northwestern is very famous, but they also appreciate this type of theoretical research that looks at big picture questions about marketing. And so it was a very good fit for me after my PhD
1: thank you for sharing that anecdote. One of your research areas is moral beliefs and how they shape consumer choices. And now when you tell that anecdote, you're almost already defining what a moral belief is. And in that context, it becomes very clear, this this idea of monogamy and that driving the suggested consumer choice that you were supposed to make in that moment, which is not take the vaccine. That is really interesting and troubling. And yeah, let's take a step back for a minute And also define moral belief the way that you define it in marketing and in consumer behavior and in your research?
0: Moral beliefs are both very easy to define and very hard to define. They're very easy to define because what they really mean is this people's categorization of what's right and wrong. And then, you know, people have these complex categorizations of this is right, this is wrong, and that's just there in their head. Now, that's a simple way of defining it is the belief system of what's right and what's wrong. Okay. Now, the complex part of it is that there doesn't seem to be one definition of what le- or one deciding factor of what makes people think something is right or wrong. It seems to be all over the place. People in different cultures seem to have different beliefs about it. People of different age groups, different ideologies, everything. So it's complex, and that in that we don't know exactly what it is, but we can uh, define it like in a very macro way, and say that it's people's it each individual person's belief of right versus wrong.
1: Absolutely, each individual's personal belief of what's right and wrong makes total sense. So I know you study healthcare specifically and healthcare marketing specifically, but you also at Kellogg work with executive audiences, right? That come from different industries, not just healthcare and. When you consider why it is important for leaders and organizations to understand the power of moral beliefs and how they impact consumer behavior, can you talk a little bit about why that is so critical?
0: So I obviously think it's critical and I'm probably a biased audience for it because I'm immersed in that research. But here's the thing. Marketing as a discipline started off in the last one century, like as a systematic discipline. And the way we've thought about products is from a very utility perspective, is that is it convenient? Uh, Does it fulfill a need? Or from this type of enjoyment perspective, is it fun for people to do? Is it it like a horror show? People love feeling horrified and so it sells. But I think where I see a lot of the executive trend moving towards is this thing not just about looking about utility of a product and enjoyment of a product, but also about values aligned with the product or what it represents. And we see a lot more social movements get converged with brands, these days, And that stems from moral beliefs. It's about people think that, no, you as a brand cannot be quiet about some issue. You have to identify yourself and state your stance. So we now, I think in the last 10, 15 years or so, are seeing this sort of value angle come up to business, where it's not just about defining the features of your product. It's also about what the product stands for and or what the person that's selling the product stands for. So I think now we've clearly reached, we probably have been working towards it, but I think our society clearly has reached this point where moral beliefs and values that go behind a brand is an important feature of the brand itself. So I talk to my students always about being aware of the audience's values.
1: Absolutely. I'm thinking about Patagonia and the recent decision to donate the company to the planet, but even before then, always having this really strong commitment to giving 10%, I believe, of their revenue or profit to climate-related causes. Do you have another, maybe a case study or a story where an organization maybe made the decision, we're really going to lean into this, I don't want to call it a trend, but into this need to... Identify how we're going to attract people around our brands by playing to their moral beliefs.
0: Yes, I absolutely yes. And I think the most sophisticated case studies or examples of that is not about firms or brands essentially giving money or branding themselves around something. But the more sophisticated way, in my opinion, to look at consumer morality is like building it into your product. Okay, here's here's an example. So, you know, Swiffer Mops, the wet mops. Yeah. So Swiffer Mops, obviously, hugely popular in the US. It's very convenient, right? Like you quickly, you don't need to go load water and then mop your floor and then go ditch the water or something. So Swiffer Mops launched mops in Italy in early 2000s and a lot of European markets, I think even mid 2000s Maybe. maybe. And it didn't do well in Italy at all. They almost flopped and their branding was pretty almost exactly the same as what they did in the U.S. They spoke about how it's so convenient. You could just get it off of a of back, and then mop and then your mopping is done. And it didn't work. So that was a puzzle for the brand team back then because they wondered about what went wrong because they knew this was a successful product. This has been a gold star product in the U.S. market. And they had done on this testing where people agreed that, yeah, this is very convenient. So they didn't know why it was not working. And then they did a lot of post-market research. So you go back, this is the type of research you do after something has happened. And then you go figure out why that thing happened. And in this case, they did a lot of qualitative stuff where they went into depth and spoke to these homemakers, mostly women, who brought the mops. And what came out of that research was that a lot of these women believed that if something was convenient, then it meant that you were a lazy person. If I am Using a very convenient product, it means I'm not a good mom or something that I am lazy. I'm not supermodel because I'm not super hardworking. So do you see how that's like an insight about people's moral beliefs that's ingrained into the product? It's not about just donating money. It's not about some type of social media hashtag. And then they went back and they realized that, okay, what we are thinking of convenience as this positive spin is actually a negative spin. Because people think a good person is hardworking.
1: That makes total sense. And it's also sad, but yeah, it makes absolutely.
0: total sense. I mean, I know. it's Yes, it's I see why you would call it sad. But in my perspective, that's the culturally and belief. I don't know how to editorialize it as right or wrong, but that's what is believed in that culture.
1: Absolutely. And how valuable to have done that post-market research so that yeah. they can understand and shift the positioning for that culture. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So they then shifted it to not base so much heavily on convenience. They then shifted it to base it as they sold it as the last step after you've done all yeah. your hard work. So you do the real mopping, right? What is hard work and what a good person does. And then you do Swiffer just as like a finishing touch on your mopping. No. Yes. (laughs) And it worked.
1: Of course it worked.
0: Yes, of course it works. This is a successful story. But this is what I mean. And I, I hope I'm making this point as well as I hope I'm making, is that this is the sophisticated way to understand consumer morality. It's not just about donating to the thing that's popular right now. Of course, paying with your wallet helps. But I think as a business person, you need to have that inherent understanding of the moral DNA of your market. And you need to build it into your product at every level, not just as a corporate sponsorship thing, but like product design, positioning, how you speak to consumers and so on.
1: Makes total sense to me. I'm sure every industry has its Mm -hmm. perceptions that marketing leaders should be aware of, but then culture by culture, as you illustrated, there are nuances that leaders need to be aware of. How is this insight that you've had studying morality and consumer behavior something that an organizational leader, even if they're not in marketing, Mm -hmm. can keep front and center as they lead the organization So
0: I think there are a few different ways what I think is important and often overlooked is to think about features of what they're offering beyond product features. Right. So I mentioned about how typically we think about the reason why someone buys something for reasons like convenience, for reasons like price, for reasons like it's fun. But I think it's important for entrepreneurs to also understand the values and beliefs of their target segment of the people that they're talking to beyond just what they think is relevant to their product. If you're selling a mop, then thinking about the convenience is that thinking about the product level. But understanding that hard work is important is about understanding your target segment, right? So I think people need to look beyond what they're offering and look at their market and what the market holds to be values or beliefs. And then try to be in sync with that, I would say, is my takeaway from a lot of my research.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure not just in marketing, but across organizational functions. Yes. There's always a need for research. Or there's always this consensus. We need more research on X, Y, and Z, but research <laughs> is often deprioritized. Would you agree, you know, that it's like, oh, we have urgent fires to put out, or we can't really spend months and months or millions of dollars or however much it would cost on research. So it falls by the wayside. What kind of research have you seen be most effective you just mentioned post market research, which is really interesting, but is your persona research competitive positioning? And maybe what is low hanging fruit in terms of research that organizational or leader can pursue that you think should not be negotiable? So I think that the
0: research gets more and more extensive, and understandably, the more you customize it. The more you want to to study a specific question, a specific product, and especially if it's your new product, then it, of course, gets very expensive. But I think one way to stay on top of what's happening with the market is to be in touch with the type of research that looks at broad gents. That type of data usually scales up. It's far less expensive because it's not conducted for like one firm or one client. A lot of the research firms and even government agencies, because I study a lot of healthcare stuff a lot of the data just is free because people keep observing these trends. I think if you're someone that doesn't want to spend a lot of money, burn through money on specific research questions, I would say the bare minimum that one ought to keep in touch with research is population trends and cultural trends, especially what are people liking, what are people caring, and there's a bunch of different data sets that track sentiment. And if you just have a pulse of the segment so to speak you know pulse of the market that itself is I think quite helpful for how costly it is and often it's like almost no cost often it's free often it's very cheap because they're not really doing that research for you it's market level research so I think that is like the bare minimum research I think
1: anyone at any level of business should be doing Execu, the podcast, is sponsored by Viv Higher Education, a full-service marketing agency and enrollment strategy consulting firm for colleges and universities. Viv is passionate about executive education and lifelong learning. Today's episode is brought to you in collaboration with the Northwestern Kellogg School of Management. And then there is also the research that happens as part of just running your business, right, and learning by doing. What have you seen be effective as executives try to keep track of the insights that they've gained by putting their product in market? Maybe a prototype, maybe the finished product, they launch it. How can you best track your insights around how it's resonating with the target audiences?
0: So there's a few different ways. I think the traditionally solid way that people would do it, and this is also a low-cost way, and I think this still holds pretty true, is to talk to your channel partners now, the idea of what a channel partner is has changed a lot these days. A lot of times your channel partner now is like some online streaming service or something. So in which case, I think just talking to people who are downstream members of whatever it's you're selling. It could be the product manager on your streaming partner. It could be the mom and pop shop that's selling your handmade products, anything. I think just talking to them is Very cost effective because they have the sense of what goes on shelves, what gets off shelves. So I think that's a very nice, streamlined, efficient way to keep in touch with. What's happening in the market is to be in touch with your channel partners and in a a very qualitative sense. Talk to them. Who's buying? What are they liking about it? What are they not liking about it? And so on. And because there are millions of consumers, but there's only tens or twenties of channel partners. It's far more efficient to do that type of research.
1: Absolutely. And how would you get at moral beliefs, right? As you get that feedback from your channel partners, how do you tease those out? So
0: here's the funny thing about moral beliefs. I use this academic language to say it, but of course, that's not, those are not the words people will use. You will have to look out for sort of intuitive judgments that people have about something right or wrong without them using those words now the swiffer mop thing is that there may be someone your mom and pop shop might say you know what i know someone that you know she thinks she's a very hard-working homemaker so she doesn't want to buy this because this just sounds lazy to her and you you need to decode that as a moral belief, belief. the same um, tracing you were talking about tracing research So if you have a channel partner then we will say something like, you know what, this pricing seems too low. They don't think the product is going to be good. And then you have to decode that people have this inference that if something is very cheap, then it's not high quality, even though it could be cheap for other reasons, right? Like very high quality products could be very cheap. So you need to, I guess the trick with something as subjective as moral beliefs is people will not express them in that manner but that they just say something they believe is true about the world. And you need to decode it to understand that, oh, there is a right, wrong judgment that's going on that I need to be mindful of. It
1: makes just so much sense. I wonder how many leaders or product managers, executives are tuned into that kind of decoded moral language. Yeah. Yeah. And, or if it's just an intuitive thing that some people just understand more intuitively. But it does seem to be at the very core of what makes a product successful when I hear you talk about it.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of it is that, and this is the academic belief also, is that moral judgments are very intuitive. It's not something that people think a lot about or it just feels right or wrong to them.
1: So you have published research on that topic and it's been a pillar of your career. Is there a new research challenge that's really keeping you up at night that you're trying to crack?
0: So my other stream of research that we haven't spoken about a lot today, because it really doesn't apply to the mass markets that much, is studying stigma. So very often stigma has been studied in type of sociology, type of intergroup tension type context. But. I like to study stigma as another socio-moral factor that sort of plays into people's consumption patterns. Like how, for example, just like the vaccine thing I told you about is that uh, it's that stigma of having multiple sexual partners, of having a non-monogamous life. The other type of stigma that sort of creeps up in a lot of my research is stigma related to mental health seeking, which again, when there's a conversation about mental health, and if I am a marketer, let's say I have an app that helps people track their mental health symptoms and so on, right? So a lot of focus is spent on making it convenient, pricing it and so on. But my research looks at how do we take away the stigma associated with things that are beneficial to consumers? And that really, I think, is my big picture problem that I try to solve with a lot of my research is that. It seems like a lot of good things, and I'm putting good in quotes because I understand good is very subjective, but good as in good for the health, good for the social, public health. Things are stigmatized like screening for diseases that people might be embarrassed about, or getting help with issues, health issues, or consuming stuff like ear products, sanitary napkins, birth control. And there are so many of these little things that we think about as niche issues, but but they're all they all have this aspect of stigma to them, and I think my big problem I try to get at it a little bit with every little project is about destigmatizing what are decidable behaviours.
1: It sounds related, but also deserving of its own research stream at the same time. So coming from that, from your context of research, but also maybe going beyond it a little bit, what advice would you give current or emerging leaders who are hoping to make a big impact on their organization?
0: I think to me, almost a defining feature of a good leader is someone that is forward looking. And I'm using the phrase forward-looking because forward-looking is a very non-trivial, complex judgment. You need to understand people's sentiments, but you also need to have an idea of how the country is moving, the economy is moving, are these jobs going to be then 15 years down the lane and so on. And at the same time, which again, it has these qualities of empathy, try to understand people that work with you, all these emotional and rational judgments together make someone very good at being forward looking. And I think that's why that is a very important quality in a leader to me. And which is why it's not that easy to come by, right? It's not, it is a fairly rare attribute.
1: Yeah. So a good leader is someone who is forward looking, and that is not a non trivial or non complex trait. I love that. That's a really good way of putting it. So, in your teaching at Kellogg, you obviously have a front row seat to what Kellogg is all about. And if you think about the vast array of options that today's executives or emerging leaders have for education, what do you think makes Kellogg stand out?
0: I would say. The Kellogg experience is very uniquely collaborative. It's not the type of business environment, which is an individual competitive type environment. It's a diverse, collaborative group of people that you get to work with and that you get to study with when you come to Kellogg. I have heard from students that they seem to really enjoy that once they move on to firms or end up taking up leadership roles because... It's always in the mindset of being a team player and as a part of a bigger group than just being an individual.
1: It's also compelling because I think speaking of stigma or moral beliefs that a lot of people might even say leadership is not for me. I don't want to lead big teams. I don't want to lead big organizations because I'm not that competitive. I feel like I've heard people say that in my own life where I think they have really great leadership potential or intuition but kind of shy away from it because they don't want to be too competitive or come across as too driven, especially with women, which is troubling as well. But it's good to hear that Kellogg is taking a different approach and almost reframes what leadership is and what executive positions can look like.
0: Yeah, we've been speaking about all these inferences people make from one thing, which might not be true, but I think... People traditionally believe that if you're successful, you're a leader, you somehow lack those warm qualities of being empathetic, being a good team player. I personally don't think that is true. And I think Kellogg has always had this value of bringing both of them together. And that is reflected, like you said, in our very collaborative, diverse culture is that. We don't think it's necessarily one or the other. I think good leaders are both of them. They have the emotional warmth component. They're obviously very competent and very smart. And somehow that makes them a good leader.
1: So usually I end with the question in a nutshell, what does leadership mean to you? But you've already given a really great answer about leadership being about being forward looking. So maybe I'll reframe the question just a little bit and ask. You personally, as a leader in the classroom, as a researcher, and when you work with executives and maybe potentially as a consultant with organizations, what do you care most about? What do you hold yourself accountable to as a leader?
0: My perspective as a leader very much is as an educator. So I think my idea of good leadership is someone that creates a very competent space, but also a very warm space. So my classrooms, when I my things that I teach to both my PhD students, MBA students, my research, it's very rigorous. It's very scientific. I follow the gold standards of science. But at the same time, I try to keep myself very approachable and present for people. And those are, I think, are my values of leadership.
1: Another tension that people might construct is you can't be warm and rigid or vigorous, you know, about your standards at the same time. And I'm glad to hear that you busted that myth because it sounds like your students are getting the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, I try my best. I don't know how much the myth is busted, but I do what I can do.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your insightful research with us. It was a pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed learning from you and I can't wait to share this episode with the world. It
0: was an absolute pleasure also, Suzanne. Thanks for having me over.
1: Thank you for listening to You the podcast sponsored by Viv Higher Education. We hope you learned something that will help you grow as a leader. Please don't forget to share this episode with your network and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes.